Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, and welcome to the Guardian Books podcast. I'm Sean Kane. And I'm Claire Armistead. This week, we look at different ways to write a life. We head to the British Library to take a look at the correspondence of Thomas Cromwell, Henry VIII's infamous advisor, and talk to historian Dermot McCulloch about how to build a new history when your subject is so notorious. And we speak with New Yorker cartoonist Ken Crimstein about telling the story of one of the 20th century's greatest thinkers, Hannah Arendt, through the art of comics. But Claire, there have been so many graphic biographies, uh, graphic memoirs over the last, uh, probably last decade. I was actually looking into it and the earliest graphic memoir that I can find is from 1881 um, by a Portuguese fella who was writing about his travels in Brazil. But uh, over the last decade, there have been quite a lot of what you might call sort of a, a graphic biography of significant figures. Um, and there were three, uh, there was a trilogy by Nobrow, which were quite big sellers recently for Einstein, Marx and Freud, which were fabulous. But it does feel like there have been more and more more of them recently, doesn't there? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I think that it's sort of marks the, the maturity of the graphic novel, which we're not allowed to call graphic novels to anybody who's actually really involved. We have to call them comics. But <laughs> yeah. the, the graphic novel has developed to such an extent that it's looking for more outlets. It's grown out of itself, which is not to say that it won't carry on being itself as mm. well. And the benchmark, in a way, for us in the UK was in 2012 when Daughter of Her Father's Eyes won the Costa Biography Prize. And that was by Brian and Mary Tolbert. And it combined the life of Lucia Joyce with the life of Mary Tolbert, who was the writer who was also the daughter of a famous Joyce scholar. Mm -hmm. And often these things, are. it struck me that they are often about making comparisons between historical figures and the writer. They often combine biography and memoir. Mm -hmm. And it's often about amusing on the ability to find one's own creative space and the continuing battle to do so. And there is a recent one that came out which I was very taken with, which was Mansfield and Me by a New Zealander, Sarah Lang, which put her life, her efforts to find herself as a writer and to compute the life of a writer alongside the life of a mother with a growing family, alongside the life of of Catherine Mansfield, who's, Mm. of course, one of the most famous New Zealand writers who'd actually died at 34 at pretty much the age that Sarah Lang started going. And this is, it's really productive, this area. Yeah, I mean, there's um, also just recently, there was Haymar, which uh, if we're sort of broadening biography to include memoir, Nora Krug's Haymar is a fantastic example of that because she's sort of looking at Germany's collective sense of guilt over the history of the, the Nazi party in the country and the crimes that were perpetrated during the Holocaust and looking at her own family story and only realising as an adult that there were Nazi figures in her family's history but no one ever spoke about it. So it's sort of both her own story, her family's story and also the story of Germany at the same time. And this is a thing that I think that even in regular biographies that aren't necessarily graphic novels, I think that's usually the best, that's a common trait among the best biographies, a sort of wider picture that can be extrapolated from an individual story as opposed to like a cradle to grave 
this guy was born, he did some great things and then died sort of thing. And my favourite biography of all time, and it's a, a huge coincidence that we're talking about it today on the 27th of November, is uh, the mayor of Castro Street, The Life and Times of Harvey Milk, which is by um, a journalist called Randy Schiltz. And today is the 40th anniversary of when Harvey Milk was assassinated in 1978. It's an amazing biography, I think, because Randy Schultz was working in San Francisco when Harvey was assassinated, and he wrote it within the next four years after he was killed. And so you have this huge big picture of what the state of gay rights were in America at the time, but he's also talking to all of Harvey's friends who are still grieving and it's such a detailed and just feels so current because he was writing it basically as all these developments were happening and a sort of wider awareness of gay rights in America was starting to build and it's it's just fabulous. So you mentioned Mansfield and me before and that's an interesting biography because we're going to talk to Ken Crimstein in a moment but the use of colour in both is really interesting. Can you sort of talk about the use of colour in both because Ken's got this fixation on the colour green, doesn't he? Yeah, Ken said that he'd changed his mind as to how to represent Hannah Arendt and one of his breakthroughs was when he discovered that she was called the woman in green and you know it's absolutely logical isn't it that it's about art it's about illustration it color is part of what it has Mm. in the way that a writer in words can use color in terms of words and in Mansfield and me the Mansfield historical bits are done in sepia it's not black and white it's a sort of brownie wash Mm -hmm. and the current bits are done in quite bright colors You know, again, it's using the vocabulary of graphic art to tell a story. And I think that in the same way as we now know how to read comics, because we understand in what direction to read speech bubbles, for example, (laughs) I think that the use of colour is becoming part of the vocabulary. It's like it's they're creating their own dictionary and Mm. colour is part of that. And so in terms of Hannah Arendt, in terms of just in case someone is coming to Hannah, you know, completely new, what can you tell us just in terms of her life uh, before we, we hear from Ken? Well, what most people know about Hannah Arendt is that she said she coined this fantastic phrase, the banality of evil, mm. which is very contested about what she actually meant. But it has, to some extent, it's defined our thinking about industrialised slaughter. And it continues to ricochet around the world as these great massacres because obviously the Holocaust was a terrible, terrible, terrible event. But there have been other Holocausts as well (laughs) happening around the world subsequently. Mm. And often it it comes down to a collection of bureaucrats or the people who stoke the gas ovens. And, you know, she came up with that phrase in reaction to the trial of a a particular Nazi. Mm. And it sort of decouples the idea of Gothic horror from real horror as it's played out in the real world. Well, we'll hear now from Ken, um, who joined Claire in the studio and began by talking about why he was inspired to write about Arendt's life. I found in her somebody that was endlessly fascinating to me. I was curious, why did this person, you know, arguably one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century, renounce philosophy? How did she hang out with all these cool people? You know, how did she show this incredible amount of courage and how could I do it with pictures and which is how I communicate with pictures and words. So just tell us about Hannah Arendt. I mean, she's famous to us mainly for that slogan, the banality of evil, which is quite widely misunderstood. I would agree, including by me. I think when I started, I usually, you know, I'm not a scholar. I'm um, I'm just a licensed cartoonist. 
But, you know, I was a history major and I love philosophy and I like to learn. I teach. And I wanted to teach myself about her. So who was she? I was, I was smitten actually with the character, the person. She grew up in Königsberg, now Kaliningrad, in East Prussia, when horseless carriages rumbled over cobblestone streets. And she died in her sleep after dinner on the Upper West Side of Manhattan after the Ramones had started doing their first gigs and Nixon had resigned. So I was kind of interested in, in that. Along the way, I found out there was so much more. She was captured by the Gestapo in Weimar, Germany, for doing work for the Zionists, and she escaped. Oh, and before that, there was that little moment with Heidegger. But not uh, such a little moment, really. No, it was huge. But again, I came at it with, like I say, the typical... Uh, what we call national public radio, uh, you know, knowledge of Hannah Rent, banality of evil, and she smoked a lot. And, oh, Heidegger? Ooh, problem. What was going on there? Huge question, you know, for me that I needed to explore and learn about. And then she does more work to help get Jewish children out of France, and she gets thrown into Gurr's detention camp. And then... You know, the stories, I mean, there kept being detail upon detail upon detail, which for me was, I wouldn't say comic gold. I mean, comic in the term of the way Art Spiegelman or Chris Ware or, you know, people like that would define comics as the type of, you know, narrative storytelling that combines words and pictures to tell to tell that narrative. And, and these incidents, pictures, if you will, of her living her life were, I thought there were clues to her thinking in there. So that was why I, I felt that I, I could tell her story through pictures because she was very much about action, pictures, what we see in the public space. You call it the three escapes yeah. of Hannah Arendt. What were the three escapes? Well, there may be a spoiler alert here. <laughs> well, the first escape I alluded to, I tried to break it down into a three-act structure. Although I have a lot of sympathy that you can, in narrative pictorial storytelling, you don't necessarily have to conform to that. I felt it was sort of old school. You know, she was sort of a person of the 40s, and I love Hollywood biopics, so I wanted to do that. So the first escape is sort of that Gestapo moment where she gets picked up, and then the story is she was working in the uh, Prussian State Library uh, translating these anti-Semitic things to get to the Zionist conference, and she was putting them into ancient Greek, and the um, Gestapo thought that was code. And she said, no, you know, but they threw her in the can anyway for a week, and she sort of sweet-talked her guard, and he sprung her, and then she left immediately and became a stateless person, a refugee, for 18 years. It was the first escape. The second escape really was when she then had gone to Paris and became very good friends with Walter Benjamin and a lot of very interesting people. All those people who hung out in the cafes... Uh, that was cafe society in those days. Uh, and we're talking about Marlene Dietrich, Schoenberg, Max Ernst, Munch, yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> Chagall. Well, <laughs> well, everybody. I mean, in the Weimar scene, there was a place called the Cafe Romaniche where basically Billy Wilder said, even though when he started making money, Samuel Wilder, he was then from Galicia, working at UFA, UFA Studios, said even when he started making money, he still liked to hang out at Romaniche because he liked to slum. And that was where everybody hung out. So that was one. And then Cafe Society in Marseille, when everybody was cooling their heels trying to get out of France, 
And the U.S., I think, shrunk the entry visa thing down to like 140 a month or something ridiculous like that. And there was, yeah, Max Ernst and all the surrealists. And it was a, a, a logjam of genius. And she managed to get out. And, and then the third escape really uh, is more of a, an internal psychological escape that I've sort of posited for her to deal with a lot of her own demons. One of the interesting things you do in this is it is partly telling a story, but what you also are dealing with is somebody, the excitement of whom lies inside their brain. And that's not very dramatic necessarily. I mean, there's lots of dramatic stuff going on around them. And I think that you fantastically get the erotics of thought, (laughs) (laughs) particularly in in that early sort of very sexy bit with Heidegger, who's this young, brilliant lecturer who speaks without notes. And suddenly there's this explosion between them. Yes, I mean, Heidegger, although we a lot has come out and a lot was known probably at the time, in the 20s when she went to Marburg, had attracted really sort of uh, a cadre of, you know, brilliant students because he was really sort of reinventing philosophy, tearing it down to the floorboards and basically saying, you know, what is, is, you know. And, and this was part of the phenomenon that I sort of kind of just learned about as I was doing the book that, at least when I grew up, Germany didn't exist in America. Beethoven was even American, like, da-da-da-da, come on, that's American, come on, you know. It just wasn't a thing. And so I started looking into it, and oh yeah, there was Einstein, and oh, oh, uh, and they asked the big questions. And Heidegger had around him a group of some of the best and brightest Jewish students. I mean, you had Herbert Marcuse, you had Hans Jonas, you had... uh, Levinas was there, uh, Leo Strauss was there, and Hannah was there. And he was a rock star. Uh, you know, I hate that cliche, but, you know, he skied to class. I like that. <laughs> he skied to class from a hut. Oh, he, he skied. I thought you said he skied the class. That's well, he skied oh, the class. Nice he may have gone skiing before. with the class. No, he, he, but he had some, he was 32 and married and a couple of kids, and he fell very, very hard for Hannah and some of those a document still exists, but I think it was this sense of people were unafraid to ask the huge questions. And Hannah, throughout the book, I kept saying, as I was working on it, she kept giving me these gifts. Like, it was sad. I mean, her father died when she was young of syphilis, and a particularly horrible type of syphilis where he had these bouts of insanity and he didn't recognize her. And she coped with that by um, teaching herself ancient Greek and starting a performance club of ancient Greek tragedies when she was like 14, as as one will do. So I was fascinated by this character. So the intellectual excitement and the physical excitement of the, you know, the roaring 20s or whatever came together for me. Yeah. And I think, you know, she was a sensual person. And I'm not just talking about in the sort of sexual way. I mean, she was, she believed in the immediacy of experience and, and she suffered for it in many ways and had to then reassess herself, you know. Her breakout moment was the Eichmann trial after the Second World War, wasn't it, in terms of becoming an absolute rock star in her own right? Uh, Well, I think the origins of totalitarianism, those are two separate moments, I think, after the Second World War, to come to grips with, you know, there were a lot of people who, in those days, again, you know, you have to, for me, when you're writing history, you have to do it from the point of view of the people in the time. And... There were a lot of sympathy among intellectuals, certainly in in New York, to communism, 
but they were divided on like, are you pro-Stalin or anti-Stalin? And she was so against totalitarianism, what it does to the human soul and the human spirit, she couldn't countenance pro-Stalinist people. So she wrote The Origins of Totalitarianism, and she took down the Nazis and the Stalinists in it. And then the Eichmann moment is, of course, a little bit later than that, when the Israelis capture Eichmann, and there's that trial. And she, she says, I have to go. I have to look into his eyes. I have to see him. You make the connection when you're talking about, you have sort of thoughts, her thoughts about totalitarianism, and you make the direct connection with mm. fake news. You use the word <laughs> fake news, which wouldn't have existed then. But it absolutely makes the point that we are sort of drifting. You could see us as drifting towards a similar yeah. place. Yes, I think she, it's interesting that fake news came into it because I, I don't know exactly when I wrote that, but uh, I guess it was in the air at the time. But um I do think she says that our only prevention, our only precaution against this kind of craziness is to face reality head on. And if we lie, if we don't tell each other the truth, then we don't get the full picture of reality and things go, you know, wonky in a big way. And how you put it is before totalitarianism, leaders can fit reality to their lives. Their message is an unrelenting contempt for facts. They live by the belief that fact depends entirely on the power of the man who makes it up. Now, that is so scary, isn't it? Uh, but it's also so resonant today. And, and actually, that is an instance of, that's not my words, those are Hannah's words. Don't forget, she lived through the rise of Hitler. I mean, she loved the German language. She loved language. She was proudly a German. She could have even been a bit of a snob about it, and she admitted it. She saw what Hitler and Goebbels and Eichmann did to language by turning it into cliché, and she thought that was weak thinking weak thinking. And that led to it. And yeah, the man who makes up the story gets to define it. And that's dodging reality. And then since we've mentioned the Eichmann trial, we must talk a little bit about that because that was where this phrase, the banality of evil came from. And it's so current now that we forget just how radical a statement it was. And, 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 not, and people didn't want to hear that statement. No, it's still, I don't think it's lost any of its potency to this day. And, you know, again, subsequent truth has come out and things about Eichmann and many people would say, you know, she said he was no Richard III, you know, and, you know, whether he was or he wasn't, the crime that she accuses him of, of not thinking, and as she puts it, the other fellows, because she liked to use common, she'd throw in common phrases. Yeah, banality doesn't mean, it means not thinking, it means ordinariness, you know, she likes to say evil doesn't necessarily happen by people who believe one thing or another thing. They're people who believe nothing. So what she says about him is she says, as hard as I try, I cannot see a monster in the glass booth. I see a bore, a careerist, former vacuum cleaner salesman spouting empty sales pitches. He's ordinary, which makes his crimes even more horrible than a Frankenstein fantasy. That is her words, is it? No, the Frankenstein fantasy is mine. Uh, uh, but the, yes, a man, an ordinary man in a booth spouting, you know, the normalcy of it was what, was what shocked her. The fact that it could be your neighbor, your neighbor could turn on you. You know, I think where she was at was that if we call him a monster, then we get, she wouldn't have known this word, this is a modern word, but then we get closure. And her thing is there isn't closure. There is no closure. This is a whole new thing. Why does that mean that she's turned her back on philosophy? She felt that philosophers retreated into contemplation, 
They removed themselves from the world. And she felt that this was something that happened, you know, and I did a lot of reading on this. And she said that, and, and Heidegger may have spoken about this, but ever since they killed Socrates, um, philosophers have said, well, uh, we don't want to, you know, let's talk in code, you know, let's, you know, the world is not right. And she was like, no, 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 the world is it. The world is all there is. So if you're going to say that the game of philosophers is to just think about the world, you're wrong. Just, just throw in. And in fact, uh, there's a famous interview where uh, Gunter Gauss, who became part of Willy Brandt's government at a great television show in, her, in Germany, and she was the f sort of first woman and whatever to be on this show. And his first question is, how is it to be a woman philosopher in this very male-dominated field? And she takes a you know long drag on her cigarette and exhales and says, well, I must protest, I don't consider myself a philosopher at all. <laughs> Which you can read either way, because in one another page you, you have a picture of her sitting with with her colleagues, and she's the first woman full, full professor. professor. Yeah, and she says, "Just a woman, eh?" <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, she an alternate title that I'm thank goodness I never used for for the book, but helped guide me as I was writing it was the woman who bit the hand that fed her. I mean, she loved the pariah. This was a big word for her. She loved looking at society from an outside point of view. I think she got a lot of that from her friend Walter Benjamin who, like most people living in New York and in Greenwich Village, and back in the day, Benjamin was like uh, the toast of the town. You know, we were all just, oh, you know, illuminations, you know, art in the age of mechanical reproduction. We were all carrying our Benjamin books around. And then when I found out how close she was with him, and I think this is a part of her story that, that really needs to be told, to the point where Benjamin bequeaths his, his last great thing, uh, the thesis on, on the philosophy of history, to her. I just want to switch focus slightly and talk about how you've done it. We've talked about what you've done. And I want to talk about the use of green. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad you brought that up. I like to say that what we do is we deal with our limitations. And I think when I was originally going to do the book, I didn't want to do it in color. I didn't want to do it in full color. I'm trained as a New Yorker cartoonist. I think black and white is the whole world uh, fantastic, don't need color. Color causes problems. But I was allowed to have one color, and I thought, well, I'll take it. And again, another, another one of these gifts, you know, uh, I was reading zillions of biographies, and somewhere along the way it said Hannah was sometimes known as the woman in green. She liked to wear green. And I thought, well, that's neat. And then I also knew that she loved natality, the idea of birth and growth. And this also fit into the idea of Contra Heidegger, who was, you know, unto death and all this sort of, she was very much about birth. So I thought, well, how great. This will help. It's also a real trick to show somebody grow, you know, in a cartoon. I mean, you know, as, as I was saying before, you know, Charlie Brown never aged, you know. So I found some visual cues, but the green um, really, really help. She's the only person who wears green. Yeah. And the, in fact, green does appear right towards the end of the book. Green starts to appear in, in different contexts right. as her thoughts take over from her life. Again, it's such a clever idea. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I felt that, at the, especially on the last page, I could let it kind of come out because I feel that her thoughts resonate. I mean, she was a provocateur. She felt that storytelling should not just end with a neat pat. You know, she, I loved her thinking about storytelling. And there was a quote that she gave me, one of her gifts, where she says, storytelling reveals meaning without committing the error of defining it. And I loved that because she doesn't think that the world is about one plus one equals 
two, she thinks it's about one plus one equals the smell of pie or something like that, you know? And that's why her thoughts provoke more thoughts. And she was a philosopher. I was talking to someone, I think he may be the person that runs the Leo Strauss Center at the University of Chicago, and we were talking about Hannah, or it was definitely a scholar that I talked to along the way, and he said, Hannah did not have a school. She was just by herself. Other philosophers have acolytes around them. And she believed that the only way we can get ethics is through storytelling. And I found that so so liberating. And in fact, she went ahead and wrote a book, or what was collected as a book, a collection of stories called Men in Dark Times, which, by the way, includes two women, two or three women, Rosa Luxemburg and Isaac Denison and others. But that, I think, goes along with her saying that man, quotes around it, does not inhabit the world. Men do. So, man, you know, men in dark times. And she tried to show through Benjamin, through Bertolt Brecht, who was very flawed, a great friend of hers, but flawed, the flaws and the triumphs of these people, that this is how we learn about the world. And that's how I wanted to deal with her. Certainly not a hagiography in any way, but a character who, you know, as I was reading it, she challenged me constantly. That was Ken Crimstein speaking with Claire Armitstead. Today in Focus is a new Guardian podcast that brings you closer to our journalism by getting behind the news every weekday. You'll join me, Anushka Astana, talking to people at the centre of the big stories impacting our world. We'll use personal perspectives and expert analysis to put you at the heart of what matters. Listen to Today in Focus and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you choose to listen. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot of you listening will have come across Thomas Cromwell through Hilary Mantel's Wolf Hall and Bringing Up the Bodies. The life of the notorious fixer who rose from obscurity to become the right-hand man of King Henry VIII has become overshadowed by the weight of his reputation over the last four centuries. So when Mantell herself calls historian Dermot McCulloch's new biography of the man the biography we have been waiting for for 400 years, you know we are in for a stonking read. Dermot used the British Library's Cotton Collection, which was founded in 1571 by Robert Cotton, to give us an extraordinary insight into the Tudor world during Cromwell's time. So Claire, in this interview, Dermot says he was working to fill quite a lot of gaps because there is a lot that we know about Cromwell, but there is also a lot that we don't know. And he says he has to squeeze meaning from the resources that he can find and piece them together to make historical fact, in inverted commas. Um, And he describes the biography's art as a type of pointillism. So you put one piece of evidence next to each other and another, and then you see a greater picture. 
some people might find this difficult to wrestle with. Does it become fiction if it's not hard facts? Is there, is this sort of a rise of biographers taking more liberties these days than there used well, to be? It's really, it's really interesting. Thomas Cromwell is actually stands in quite an interesting relation to the idea of the banality of evil, which we've <laughs> just been discussing. In that he was a bureaucrat. Basically, what he was doing was doing his master's bidding mm-hmm. and then became more and more powerful. But his, a lot of his transactions would have been about managing budgets and yes. you know, all those really boring things. stuff. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And so what we have, we don't have those heroic narratives that we have of Henry VIII. Mm. We we only have his transactions and you know and that that famous portrait of him mm. rather sinister portrait which you can read an awful lot into in either direction. So pointillism is a really good description in one sense, mm. in that it gives the sense of lots and lots of dots of detail adding up to a big picture. But in a way, it's not because these are not dots of somebody's imagination; they're no. dots of fact, yes. which add up to the picture of a life that is strung up between transactions because in a way that's what a life is isn't it a life is strung out between all the moments at which the mark is put down in history and the mark might be i went to the office today or i, I you know i sent a, an assassin off to kill somebody who wasn't pleasing my master <laughs> but it's much more likely to be the former than the latter <laughs> so it's not necessarily like uh, how like we have conversations about things like autofiction where people start getting very tense about the line between what is memoir and what is a novelization and we've seen a huge rise of, of, of books that would fit into that category there's no necessarily equivalent for biography even if a biographer has to fill in gaps by reading one letter and extrapolating what that meant for that week in that person's life for well example. there is in that the construction of fact and the the prioritization of stuff you could create two completely different pictures by mm. the different ordering of facts and also obviously a biographer's having to use their they are having to use their imagination but it's not the same as what H- Hilary Mantel does mm. and Hilary Mantel has the license to actually sort of go into a Holbein portrait and completely reanimate it according to her own imagination mm. in a way that it wouldn't probably be proper for Dermot McCullough to do that. (laughs) No, it wouldn't be proper. Well, let's head to the British Library now where Richard Lee went to see if he could get closer to the elusive Cromwell. So we're here at the Manuscripts Reading Room with the British Library with Dermot McCulloch and a few choice volumes. They're large bound copies of books containing some of the, um, the treasures of the, of the cotton collection. So Dermot, what exactly have we got here? Well, we've got things which are crucial examples of how you construct the life of Thomas Cromwell. For his patrons, his own handwriting, we've got Henry VIII here. And uh, as we've heard, this is the Cottonian collection. And not to put too fine a point on it, Sir Robert Cotton nicked these. <laughs> from the state papers, the rest of which, the bulk of which, are in the National Archives in Kew. But these are really cherry-picked because they are so significant. This first one we've got here is Cardinal Wolsey writing to his servant, Thomas Cromwell. And it's a very intimate letter at a a time when Wolsey was in dead trouble. He'd been dismissed as Lord Chancellor. His disgrace and worse loomed. So he's writing to one of the few servants he can really trust. And if we, we sort of home in on it, we'll see that because it's tremendously personal. We're looking at Wolsey's own very neat sort of italic hand. And it begins, Mine own entirely beloved Cromwell. I beseech you, 
as you love me and will even... You see, he's, he's really in trouble. He knows he's in trouble. So what exactly is going on at this point? Wolsey had been sent off, banished, to one of his palaces, uh, his palace at Isha, the Bishop of Winchester. And he is therefore out of the loop. He's not too badly out of the loop, actually. It's sort of a few miles from Hampton Court. But he is desperate to know what's going on. And Cromwell is the man who's still in the loop in London and hanging around the court, hearing what is happening. And so you go through this letter and you get pleas and begging that he will be told the news. And he's been given bits of news from elsewhere. So his personal physician, he mentions, right at the bottom here, Master Augustine, who's an Italian, Agostino, actually, Master Augustine showed me how you had written unto me a letter wherein you should advertise me of the coming hither of the Duke of Norfolk. I assure you, there came to my hands no such letter. And he's desperate to know what that letter said more, because the Duke of Norfolk is, is the great enemy. He's one of the other people jostling for power with Henry VIII. Because this is in 1529, right at the, uh, right at the close. That's right. I mean, uh, Wolsey had been in power for more than a decade. The greatest man in the land, Lord Chancellor, the Pope's personal representative in England, Henry VIII's bosom pal. And the trouble about being close to Henry VIII is that he can love you one moment and loathe you the next. And the moment he loathes you, he'll believe any old nonsense to back up his new opinion. And so now people like the Duke of Norfolk were pouring poison into the king's mind. And at the same time, there will be other courtiers who were backing Wolsey. So Wolsey is desperate to know how things are going. It could change. It could move again. How the plates are going to land. Exactly. And so um, should we leap ahead a little bit until we're kind of, uh, this is now to uh, October 1539 with Cromwell, the next greatest man in the land, as it were, his, the former servant, now turned master of all, who's back in charge after his illness in the spring. So, so what have we got here? Well, this is a peculiar form of document from Cromwell's archive. It's called a remembrance, and that's what it is. It's a memorandum. What he would do from early in his career, I think he was very methodical, was to draw the to-do list. And often he, you, you find these lists uh, with crossings out, so you know, tick, done that. This one doesn't have that, but it's actually in his hand. And we come to look at it because it represents uh, the ruthless side of Thomas Cromwell, the ruthless side of Tudor government. If, if you're considered a traitor, then the normal rules of justice don't really apply. And there are two items here about two Benedictine abbots who've really been marked out for death because they've tried to conceal the treasures of their abbeys. One is the abbot of Reading and the other is the abbot of Glastonbury. And so the, the two last items on the page we're looking at in Thomas Cromwell's hand read like this. Item, the abbot of Reading to be sent down to be tried and executed at Reading with his accomplices. Same thing for the abbot of Glastonbury, to be tried at Glaston and also executed there with his accomplices. You see, all right, they're going to be tried. There is going to be a trial, but Cromwell has decided already execution is the result. The verdict down there in his own neat hand. Yep, guilty, guilty. So by June 1540... Henry's ill-starred marriage to Anne of Cleves has changed everything. So what have we got here? Well, 
problem for Henry VIII was um, ceasing to be married to Anne of Cleves. How do you get out of a marriage which uh, Thomas Cromwell had set up as a huge, great diplomatic coup? And it should have all gone swimmingly. It was all connected with another royal marriage to the Lady Mary, who would marry the Duke of Bavaria. It's going to be a sort of twin time, and, and it would suit Cromwell very well. It would suit the diplomacy very well. The only problem was uh, sex, frankly, that... Henry VIII took an instant dislike to Anne of Cleves, and we simply don't know why. But that killed the whole thing. But the trouble was he could not get out of the marriage. And that uh, resulted in the collapse of Thomas Cromwell's street cred in the king's eyes. And so his enemies, long waiting for such an opportunity, ganged up. He was arrested, put in the Tower of London, and now his only use, as far as the king was concerned, was to give him enough evidence to say that the marriage should not have happened, that it never happened formally. It could be annulled. It had never happened. And I'm afraid that for Henry VIII was going to be very humiliating because the only possible route was non-consummation. In other words, the king had been impotent. But the king saw it was the only way. And so what he did was to bombard Thomas Cromwell with questions. And what we're looking at here is quite extraordinary. It is actually a page of Henry VIII drawing up questions for Thomas Cromwell. All through this conversation we've had, I've pronounced Cromwell in an unfamiliar way, Cromwell. And that's because I think that's how it's pronounced. And my proof, my actual witness for the, the, uh, the subject, is Henry VIII. Because right at the top of this manuscript, in Henry VIII's own hand, you see the heading, Questions to be asked of Thomas Cromwell. C-R-O-M-E-L-L. The man himself. Yeah, no W there. And, and notice what he calls him, too. Just reduced him to a name. This is my Lord of Essex. The Earl of Essex, but now no longer the Earl of Essex, just that uh, brewer's son from Putney. So another manuscript in, in rather better shape, it must be said, is confronting us next. Yeah, this beautiful volume is, is sort of a, a, an autograph collection. It's all the big names in uh, Tudor history. And the one we're looking at is Thomas Cromwell's daughter-in-law. Uh, her maiden name was Seymour, which is a very significant name in the reign of Henry VIII because her sister was Queen Jane Seymour. What had happened was that Thomas Cromwell had managed to marry his beloved son Gregory to the king's sister-in-law. That's extraordinary. And I, I don't understand why people have not made more of this in the past. And, and effectively, that meant that Thomas Cromwell, the brewer's son from Putney, became the king's uncle. By marriage, And you can imagine what Thomas Howard, Duke of Norfolk, thought of that. All those arch snobs in the English nobility. They would have been furious. But Elizabeth Seymour was a very remarkable young lady. She was only about 21, 22 when she wrote this letter in 1540 to the king, her brother-in-law. And she had been married twice already. And she had four children. And... Despite everything, she loved her wild young husband, Gregory Cromwell. And so she's writing to the king to plead for the future of her family and her husband, Gregory. And she's got her secretary to write the letter in a beautiful uh, secretary hand so the king doesn't have any trouble reading it. He was notoriously unwilling to read documents. This is nice and short. It looks lovely. Uh, and so she says all the sorts of things you'd expect 
Uh, she talks about the heinous trespasses and most grievous offences of my father-in-law. But she wants the king's favour to my poor husband and me, as the extreme indigence and poverty wherewith my said father-in-law's most detestable offences hath oppressed us. And so she asks for uh, pardon. And what's, I think, fascinating is that after the letter, which is written by the secretary, she signs it herself. And what she, how she signs it, your most bound woman, Elizabeth Cromwell. So she's, she's really gambling there. She's using that, that hated name. She's not going back to Seymour or, or her first husband's name, which she could have done. And the thing is, the gamble came off. The king did do good things for Gregory, who had not even been made a knight. Now he became a baron, Baron Cromwell. And his descendants did become a lordly family. They went right down to 1687. I developed an enormous affection for Elizabeth as I wrote the biography. I thought she was a real strong character. There's a wonderful portrait of her in uh, Toledo, uh, only recently identified by Holbein. There she is, a woman in a man's world. And actually the signature, very interesting, because it's really a man's signature. Women tended to scrawl in italic when they wrote in the 16th century, but she's, no, no, she's going for a man's hand. And that, I think, tells you a lot about Elizabeth Seymour. So what picture of the man, what picture of Thomas Cromwell, or Cromwell, as we must say now, what picture emerges from all this material? Admittedly, it's not a whole picture, I have to say that, because the, the archive, huge though it is, and we've seen some specimens here, is remarkably lopsided. It's basically what you'd call the in-tray. It's all the letters that people wrote to him, and the out-tray, his letters, have disappeared. Now, you might think that was sort of normal, because, yeah, it's sort of common sense, you keep the letters, but no. In the 16th century, a really clued-up uh, politician like him would have kept the very last draft his secretary had written before the, the great man ticked it and said, right, fair copy now. And we, there are those in other archives, but not in this one. And so I think what happened was that in 1540, when the great man was arrested, his household sat up all night burning the outtray for the very good reason that it's your letters that incriminate you, not so much the ones written to you. Now, it was a good try, and it didn't work, because he did get executed, but I think that's why we haven't got them. So that made writing the biography really difficult, and it's made the writing biography of Thomas Cromwell difficult over the last four centuries. So what I had to do was squeeze meaning out of what I saw there. And some of the personality did seep through that process. The loyalty to Wolsey, when he didn't need to be, and in fact lesser men had just simply deserted Wolsey. And that clearly came across as a thread to pursue through his, the rest of his life. He loved Wolsey. He actually took Wolsey's coat of arms when Wolsey was in disgrace. Mm. And you don't do that if you're a, a smarmy go-getter. You do that out of loyalty. There was a, a sort of chutzpah I got from this man. Don't care what anyone thinks, this is me. That great portrait that we all know, the Holbein, it's, it's pudgy, it's a man about to lose his temper, it's not at all flattering. Fascinating thing, though, it hung on Thomas Crummell's wall. He saw a truth in it and said, well, there you go, that's me. 
You may uh, remember the remark of his uh, collateral descendant, Oliver Cromwell, who famously said about his portrait, it must be warts and all. Well, I think he filched that line unconsciously from Thomas. That's the sort of man he was. You just take what you get. That's me. And I liked that. And the curious little things you picked up from the letters to him. He had a, a very soft spot for wild young men. And I think that's simply because his own son was a wild young man and he saw that reflected in others. And, of course, he'd been a wild young man. And so he saw the possibility in these disgraceful young men that other people deplored. The other thing uh, that I noticed about him was that widows got on with him very well. He was a great one for dowagers, and they wrote, frankly, flirtatious letters, and thank you for the wonderful evening we had last night. So out of that, I don't get the cold-hearted bureaucrat of the conventional picture. And I realise, at the end of it all, he's a Marmite person. You loathe him or you love him. Well, perhaps those are the extremes. I was very sympathetic to him. I saw him deteriorate. I saw the poisonous effect of being Henry VIII's servant. And no one really survived that experience with credit. But what an effect. He left us so much. He changed the nature of the country for good or ill. And you like him or loathe him, depending on whether you like or loathe those changes. So you say that the archives is, of course, fantastic, as it is, but nevertheless there are these gaps. How do you go about filling them? In some cases you simply have to say, we simply don't know. Otherwise you just look for patterns, like the pattern of him liking dowagers, the pattern of him liking wild young men, and those, it's, it's a sort of pointillism. You take one fact, you put it alongside another fact, and in the end, a, a picture stares out at you. What you can't do is be a novelist unless you put may or might in front of everything you say, and that's rather irritating for the reader. So you can't, as a historian, be a Hilary Mantel, nor can Hilary Mantel really be a historian. Uh, so these are two allied but different arts, uh, and the, the historian's problem is that he or she, in the end, has to say, sorry, I, I simply don't know. And it's possible something else may turn up. And that will be wonderful, particularly if it confirms your mites or maybes. But you never know. Do you think that, I mean, Hilary Mantel, is, as you mentioned, has is, is given us such a strong idea, such a strong character in her fiction of Thomas Cromwell, do you think that a biography can ever get past the distortions that are inevitable as part of that project? Oh, I think you can do your best. You can look for forgeries apart from anything else, and I uncovered various forged documents during the course of this project. One is a very well-known account of the last phase of Cromwell's career, supposedly by a man called George Constantine. It was made up by a Victorian called John Payne Collier. And another Victorian made up virtually everything we thought we knew about Thomas Cromwell's early family life. Just, it's not true. Uh, and then, once you've got rid of the dross, you can begin listening for the real facts. It's long been noticed that there are two references to Thomas Cromwell's father being Irish. And once you remove the unreality, you begin to say, well, perhaps he was. And that's fascinating. 
because, again, the, the long-term descendant, Oliver Cromwell's name, is loathed in Ireland. But that makes Oliver Cromwell Irish in descent too. And I just find that enormously satisfying when you push the tectonic plates and they come into a new shape. Richard Lee was speaking with Dermot McCulloch at the British Library. Thomas Cromwell, A Life, is published by Alan Lane, and The Three Escapes of Hannah Arendt is published by Bloomsbury. Next week, Claire, it's your picks of the year. We'll be talking crime and intrigue with Sarah Paretsky and Longing and Loss with Andre Ackerman, the author of Call Me By Your Name. Until then, please subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts and join the discussion on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. But from me, Sean Kane. And me, Claire Armistead. And our producer, Susanna Tresillian. Goodbye and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.